Okay, well, we're going to get started today, but I, I, I think, I, I believe I'm supposed to be doing a, going over the disciplines with you. Um, I've never done the, the women's disciplines. They're the same three as the guys, but they're worded a little differently. And so what I thought I would do today um, is I, I would tell you a little bit about how um, I'm impacted by a woman in my house and how she shepherds her heart. Okay. Um, and in the way that I would, um, and by the way, I, I don't know if I have a approval to do this, but you can always ask for forgiveness later, right? <laughs> I asked some key questions yesterday, and she's like, why are you asking? I'm like, I love you. <laughs> and I do. Um, here's, here's what I would, um, two key words I would use to describe what I see in my, my wife. Feeding and fencing when it comes to disciplines, disciplines one, two, and three. Um, she feeds her heart and her soul um, with the word of God. And then she's fencing her life all of the time to keep things out that she doesn't want to have come to her heart. Um, the way that we've worked out our mornings over the years, uh, especially since kids um, and it hasn't changed at all since we've had kids, is um, I'm the morning person. I like to get up early. I get up and I get the kids out of bed and I do breakfast with them. Um, and then I wake her up at some point and guard the bedroom from the kids. And she um, that's where she begins feeding her heart. What she told me she does, what I see her do every day, is the first thing she does when I when she wakes up is I give her her iPad and she reads um, The Solid Joys from Desiring God from John Piper. It's short. It's um, four or five paragraphs. And she will oftentimes read that many times over. And what she's after in her first thoughts of the day is, I want to put my mind on something I can grasp, she says, that will set me, you know, help set my heart on the things above. Um, and she reads through it enough times that it's in her mind that before she ever comes out into the kitchen to start making lunches for the kids for school and interacting with anybody else, she wants to make sure that that is what's influencing her first. And so that's where she starts her uh, feeding time uh, just to orient her mind on, on God and the word of God. And then once, uh, and she how she fences herself right there because she has her iPad. She, she doesn't check her email. We're not on social media, so she doesn't have to worry about Facebook or anything like that. Um, so she doesn't check any email and she might check a text if uh, she got texted overnight uh, to respond back to somebody. But um, for the most part, that's what she'll do. She'll just fence herself off. She wants her heart and mind on one thing. Um, then she'll step into the morning, get going. Once the kids are all gone and I'm gone, that's when she will go back and that's when she'll spend more of her time in her Bible reading. Uh, she's reading through Psalms right now. And she also, since the retreat that uh, Josh did with you ladies, she has a, a fairly extensive kind of praying thing that she's logging and keeping track of that she spends a lot of time there. Um, so... That's where she really primarily does discipline one with her heart in terms of um, shepherding her heart with God's word and then also just in praying. Um, throughout the day, though, she is also very careful um, to continue to feed and fence her life. Um, the TV's never on. Uh, she, she doesn't have a desire to do that. Um, she's careful about what she listens to. Um, she listens to book on tape. On tape, that's funny. Audio. Um, how old is Scott? Um, she's listening to, um, oh, his last name's Little. What's his first name? The Olympic runner from Eric Little. Uh, his, the, the story of him being a missionary in China and being arrested. Um, so she'll listen to that while she's doing um, her work around the house that she does. In the afternoon, she'll stop what she's doing before the kids get home and she'll um, read a little bit more. She might read Desiring God blog and see what's there. She might um, listen to Al Mohler's daily briefing. She might do some things like that to um, just kind of settle herself and focus herself back and getting ready for everybody to come home. Um, how does that work out into discipline two, into our home? Here, I am 
my my wife is has become a very disciplined woman with her life. Um, I'm so blessed by what she is. I want to be like her when I grow up someday and um, just watch how intentional she is. Um, It's not uncommon for her throughout any conversation throughout the day that she wants to talk to the kids or one of the kids or all of us about what she she read or what she uh, is thinking about. Um, On another level, uh, like during heading into Christmas or heading into Easter, she'll be the one to research Advent readings and bring them to me and say, here's two different ones I want you to look at. What do you think? And I'll look at one of them and I'll pick it. And then because she's wanting to impact our family and have our family be thinking about, um, she's very concerned that her family feed and fence as well. And so um, she's thinking of ways like that. Probably one of the um, most tangible ways that she uh, cares for us in our home is with our chalkboard wall in our kitchen. We have an island in the middle of our kitchen that has three stools and that's where the kids sit and eat and do homework and stuff and there's this big wall that has you know it's a chalkboard wall and that becomes a reflection a that's what projects what's ever in her heart and so right now it says new year new mercies on it and all of our christmas cards are around the border of it and what we do is we take our christmas cards off two maybe three at a time at a meal when we're together and that's the people we pray for um, during um, that time together, um, she'll put up. Uh, we'll do series where the kids will ask them all to read the same thing. We got teenagers in high school, so they're not all reading the same thing. But there's times where we'll pull them together and ask them to read the same thing, like do something in Proverbs, and we'll ask them. We'll give them a, a colorful index card. Pick the one verse that you want from Proverbs 16 today that you want it to impact you, and then she'll take those and she'll put those all over the board so that by the end of the month of reading through Proverbs, we've got Proverbs everywhere across or whatever. And, and so that becomes for her, like I said, it's either a platform or a projection of whatever is in her heart and we can't miss it. Um, I'm, I'm really thankful for that. It's a simple thing to do. Uh, can you do something like that and completely miss the heart? Absolutely you can. But my wife really labors hard that way for us and um, it feeds us and it fences us in that way. And that's the woman who comes on Thursday mornings and watches kids. And that's the woman, that's the kind of woman who does seven and eights next generation ministries teaching every three weeks. Um, and um, what you see with her when she's here is, is what you get. It's, it's what she is. And she works hard at that. And I am, I am blessed by that. My family is blessed. We have far more than we, what we deserve uh, with her in our home. So, She's not here today. She has no idea I said this, and it looks like it did get on tape. So we'll uh, see what she does when she finds out I said all that. Anyway, I'm I'm blessed by her. All right, let's turn the corner and talk about honoring the Lord with our Bible reading, but also controlling ourselves in our Bible reading. Okay, Uh, It might be surprising for you to consider this, but uh, reading Scripture carefully actually involves a lot of self-control. Have you ever thought about that? Um, if I were teaching guys who wanted to go into ministry, this would be called hermeneutics. And um, how do you interpret the Bible? And at the very, I, I've become convinced in my own life and in watching and training people to try to interpret the Bible rightly that the, the, the biggest snag can oftentimes be just a lack of self-control. It doesn't cross our minds that, oh, I actually need to rein myself in when I'm reading the Bible. Um, we read God's word. It seems like there are endless temptations in our minds to run from God's words on the page that's right in front of us to these other ideas that we've heard or that other sermon I heard or that thing I read on desiring God. And the next thing you know, you've, you've turned your page in the Bible many times and you're off onto something else and your laptop's open or you're on your iPad or you're on your phone. And the next thing you know, your, your thoughts are far away from the original words of the author on a page. And the next thing you know, you can be making decisions about what that passage means on the basis of everything else you just let your mind go run to. Um, And you arrive at a foreign destination that may not actually resemble at all the passage you originally were in. Now, what would you think of somebody doing that with your own words in a love letter you wrote your husband? Okay. 
um, that they actually have your letter in your hands. And they started with your words, but then it reminded them of that scene in that movie that's just like their favorite movie and all of the connotations of love that that movie comes up with and how it really impacted them. And so they ran with that idea about love and, and so forth. And finally, where they ended up with your words actually has very little to do with your original words to your husband, words of love to your husband. And all the while, they have your letter in their hands. Do you know what it would be right to say to that person? It would be right to say to that person, would you please control yourself with my words? Do you understand? Self-control. Don't run off with, uh, from somewhere else to get at the meaning of my words. Control yourself. And so we just need to extend the same courtesy to God, don't we? I mean, after all, his words are just a little bit more important than ours. Um, and above all, we should control ourselves with his words. How? How do we do that? How do we control ourselves with God's word? Well, to do that, we should have some guidelines before us and around us to help restrain us so that we don't quickly leave his words and run off to whatever we want to run to in our minds when we read the Bible. So I'm going to give you today 10 guidelines or rules or principles that can help you restrain yourself or control yourself when you're considering our great God's words about our Savior and our life in the Bible, okay? The very first one is one I believe you have a copy of already um, in your Wellspring notebook somewhere, and that is um, a prayer, a sample-type prayer. Listen, always begin, number one, when you're reading your Bible, always begin with prayer. Prayerfully position yourself under the God of the word. I'm not going to read all of this, but um, that you have there, but I think it's included in your, in your sheet, right? Um, but that, that, that sample prayer reflects the kind of um, heart attitude that believers should have toward reading the word of God. Okay. It's not the only way to pray. It, it reflects something about what your heart must, uh, the position your heart must be in. Um, and hopefully it serves as an example uh, of a desire for self-control before the word of God. Listen, discipline or control yourself to be a worshiper of God when you're reading the Bible. Discipline yourself to be a worshiper of God as you read and interact with God's word. Okay, In so doing, you're going to honor God with your reading of the word of God. So I'm going to read that first paragraph there. You can follow as I read it. So this would be something like this that you could say to God in your prayer as you open up your Bible and wipe the sleep out of your eyes or whatever. Father, I, I intend this time in your word to be a prayerful expression of worship of you, desire for you, love for you, need of you, dependence on you. Your word tells me that as God, you're set apart from your creation and holiness. You're also high above all things and you're sovereign in your reign over all things, including my life. Yet how tenderly you stoop toward your creatures to show love and compassion and countless kindnesses. Your perfect provision sustains all that you have made and it glorifies your great name. You are worthy to be worshipped. And I desire to see more of you in your word. My pursuit of you through your word and prayer is only possible through your son, Jesus Christ, who is my savior. So I approach you through him, my substitute and high priest, the one whom I love but have not yet seen. His death in my place has secured for me this place before your throne to express my need to you. So... While, why, why have I prayerfully come before you with my Bible open? That's an answer you need to have a, that's a question you need to have a good answer to. Why am I reading my Bible? And then there's several different answers you can come up with. Here are some sample ones. <clears throat> well, first, I have your word open before me because you've revealed yourself there more clearly than any other place. Does creation reveal God? Yep. But creation does not reveal God as a redeemer. Just that he's the creator. And that knowledge alone will condemn you if you die with only that knowledge. You don't look on the mountains, you don't look on the majesty of the ocean and think, I should trust in Jesus Christ to forgive me of my sin through his sacrificial blood at the cross. Where do you get that revelation? Right there, in your Bible, right? So I have your word open because I want to see you there. I also have your word open before me because I need to learn the nature of my sin and my fallenness before you. Where do you learn what sin is? 
Look, you're going to learn a lot by just kind of looking inside and seeing what's in you, and it's ugly, and you're not going to like it, but you're not going to come to the right conclusions even then about what your sin is by looking inside. You need to look here and let God's word tell you what it is. Um, that's another reason to come before the word of God. Another reason you have your Bible open prayerfully is, is that your word is open before me so that I might undergird my life again with your saving heart and motive in the gospel of your son who overcame the penalty of my sin and the power of my sin to enslave me. Once you take and, and learn about what your sin is from the word of God, you need the gospel and you need to apply that. That's why you have your Bible open while you're reading. Finally, I have your word open before me to study what righteousness and holiness of life looks like for one who has been made into a new creature in Christ. I need to know how to live my life now as one who is a new creature in Christ. How do I please you, Lord? That's why I have my Bible open. Um, the last paragraph. I desire my heart and mind to be full of you because of what these pages reveal to me about you and all your greatness. I long for you to spill out of me into my home and wherever you lead me today. All who come into contact with me today must interact with one whose heart has drawn near to you and who is striving to obey you. Their best hope for salvation or for growth in the gospel will come from one who has searched for you in your word, gazed upon your son of the gospel and who walks by your spirit. Listen, in praying something like that, it doesn't have to be that long. It can be much shorter. But in praying something like that, what I do is I end up disciplining myself. I'm reining myself in. I'm controlling myself to be something, to be the right kind of person as I look at God's words. And I want to be a prayerful worshiper of God. I don't want to come to God's word as a, like a critic. What do you mean here anyway, God? I don't, that doesn't make sense to me. Listen, I don't have to work very hard to get there with that kind of an attitude sometimes because I'm just flawed with my sin. And if I go days without reading and days without praying, I can easily become the critic of God. I don't want to come to God's word that way. I want to come to God's word as a worshiper who's prayerful about my approach to him. Can I expect to understand anything he says if I'm something else? Do you see how critical it is for you to control yourself, rein yourself in so that you can understand what you're reading? Once you've done that, I'm going to give a disclaimer here too at this point. Um, much of what I'm going to share with you today has been is used by permission from Joel James' um, hermeneutic stuff. And he has given me lots of permission to take whatever is his and use it. So it's, it's, there's a lot of it in here. I'll, I'll refer to him um, in, in different places. But number two. Expect now a single coherent meaning. Okay, number two. Expect a single coherent meaning when you're reading. When was the last time you communicated by email or by text or by a Facebook post so as to not be understood? I'm going to write this email and I don't want to be understood. When was the last time anybody ever did it? Nobody does that with their words when we communicate. When was the last time you were not eager for your spouse to understand you or your children to understand you, your boss, a, a teacher, whoever? Um, listen, you expect to be understood, right? And when was the last time you intended to communicate two equally valid meanings from the very same set of words? So that one person hearing the words would go, oh, you, what you mean is this. But another one say, oh, no, by those same words, what she means is this. When was the last time you intended to do that? You can't. Language doesn't even allow you to do that. We act like it sometimes when we read our Bible, but that's, not impo that's completely impossible. Um, language and communication are gifts from God which allow us to take the unseen ideas in our heads. And how do people know them? We use words, we use language, and we speak. And now what was hidden inside is not a secret anymore, and it's out. It's revealed. And it's revealed through language. Language and communication are gifts from God to clearly communicate one meaning at a time, sentence by sentence by sentence. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. So we all communicate in order to be understood in this way. And when people speak, we, ex we listen expecting to understand them, and we expect to not find two different or multiple meanings from their words. Uh, let's turn to Isaiah 45. We'll take a look at um, Isaiah 45, verses 18 and 19. 
And then Deuteronomy 29, 29, what we read earlier, what uh, Jenna read for us. It's good to be refreshed with that. Isaiah 45, verse 18. At the end of that verse, um, God says, I am the Lord and there is none else. I have not spoken in secret in some dark land. I did not say to the, the offspring of Jacob, seek me in a waste place where you can't find me, right? I, the Lord, speak righteousness, declaring things that are upright. Listen, the Lord expected Israel, the offspring of Jacob, to understand him in his, uh, because his meaning in his words was not off in some secret place. He spelled them out to them, and they, he expected them to understand. In plain sight, they were there. He communicated so as to be understood. Uh, Deuteronomy 29, 29. Let's look at it again and see what God expects when he communicates. The secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever so that we may observe all the words of his law. Listen, God has not communicated everything about himself. He has it. Just because we have the Bible doesn't mean that we have everything about him. There are still some secret things about God that we do not have. But there are revealed things that he has given and that belonged at this point in this passage to Israel. That belonged to us by implication as well. Uh, in other words, God expects that man understand the things that God has revealed to him. He does not expect you to understand the things that are still secret to him. That's where we struggle, right? God doesn't hold us accountable to understand what is still secret, only that which is revealed. And notice the extent to which he expected Israel to understand. Look at verse 29. How does it end? The things revealed belong to us and our sons forever, so that what? We may observe as Israelites all the words of this law. He expected Israel to understand it so much that they could obey it. So he has an expectation that what I've revealed, you can understand and you, be, and you can obey it and you need to. Okay. Now that doesn't mean that every page of scripture is easy to understand. That it's, that it's meaning is just right there and all you have to do is just pick it off like a, a grape. It's that easy. Peter made it very clear that some of Paul's words are very difficult to understand, right? Second Peter 3.15 and 16. So we read... God's word expecting, when you open this Bible as a believer in Jesus Christ, you come to it expecting to understand what it says because it's language. You expect that with other people. How much more so should you expect it with the one who's the perfect communicator? When the one who is the word who became flesh, right? So you come to this expecting to discover meaning and one coherent message after another after another from one passage to another even though it may take some study and some patience right so we expect to discover one meaning in each text not several okay we expect one meaning that's what we expect from others when we communicate to them we count on that we enjoy that basic understanding about words and their meaning and above all we need to extend that same courtesy to god in his words Listen, the Bible can be understood because God meant it to be understood. Expect one single meaning. That's number two. And discipline yourself for that. Control yourself. Rein yourself in. I get one meaning here from this passage I'm reading. Okay? Number three, hold fast. And by the way, um, you have blank space there and I, uh, for, for your notes. I don't want you to feel like you need to frantically write everything down. You might want to listen more, write less, and then go back and listen again and fill in the blanks some more. Um, don't feel like you have to get everything down today. Number three, hold fast to the normal use of words and language. We read and we study the Bible following the practices we consider normal for any other important document. When a husband comes home from work and he sees a note on the counter and it says the light is out in the hallway, he doesn't read into that that spiritual darkness is welling up in the house. That's not a normal use of language, right? Um, he reads the note normally, and he puts a new light bulb in the hallway, right? That's the normal interpretation of the note that comes from the intended normal meaning. We have to read our Bibles the same way. This practice, uh, and when you study and read your Bible, is called the literal grammatical historical method, LGH. Literal, grammatical, historical. 
That's all I'm going to tell you today. You don't need to worry about anything else. But it just means read your Bible normally, like language is normally understood. Okay? It's really that simple. Uh, normal reading or interpretation means statements are assumed to be normal unless it is evident the author was using a figure of speech. So at one point as you're reading in John chapter 10, you get to verse 7 and he says, I am the door. You don't all of a sudden think, oh man, Jesus is wood and he swings on hinges. You don't know. You, you understand that language in its normal sense can do that. Oh, that's, he doesn't mean he's a real door. He's, he's, he's gone figurative on me. Uh, we naturally understand that he was using imagery in his communication. And our minds intuitively see that. You do that in your language all the time. You, you use a, a figure of speech and you, you expect people to get it. And God expects us to get it. But even when we interpret figures of speech, it's good to practice with the literal meaning first. What is a door? How does a door function? An actual door. How does it function? And you go through and you think through those kinds of things first. And you say, okay, now, what does that mean? What did Jesus, why did Jesus use that in a metaphoric way? And that helps you get to the normal use of language and what Jesus meant. Jesus is an entrance. He's a gateway to life, eternal life. And it's also important to understand, let me ask you this, who gets to determine if the language is figurative? Let's say you're talking and you're using figurative language. Who gets to determine if it's figurative language? The one listening to you or you? You, the author. So who gets to determine if it's a figurative use, if you're reading the Bible? The Bible. Not you, the Bible, right? So you kind of control yourself. Let God can determine the meaning of it. The controlling line of authority for the meaning is always in the words and in the context that the author spoke from. Your hearers don't get to decide when you're being figurative in your speech. You get to decide. So discipline yourself to look for normal use of language. Listen, this is not, you don't have to dig into the bottom of a cereal box and get out a decoder ring and put it over your eye and turn it and stuff like that. And all of a sudden the meaning just comes out. That's not normal. These are normal words written in a normal way, using the way that normal language works. It's not some secret thing that you don't... These are not the secret things that require a decoder ring. These are the revealed things that belong to you and me, and God expects us to understand because he communicated, right? Some people approach this Bible like, no, this is the secret stuff, and, and only some of us really know it. And so when you come to me, I'll let you know what it is. And for the right price and a donation to my ministry, you can, whatever. Okay, so hold fast to the normal use of words and language. Number four, read the passage, read the book repeatedly to make observations. You can see there are some sample questions to ask and some steps to take as you read your Bible. Notice that these questions, um, as you look through them later on your own, they lie at different levels. There's some questions that are like big macro levels, like they, they're thinking big things. Oh, I need to think big things as I read this passage. And then there's some that are like very micro level, like what does that word mean uh, that I'm reading? Um, so uh, this is where the bulk of your time is going to be spent when you're reading carefully. Uh, and don't give up too close uh, quickly here. Um, keep yourself in your chair. Keep reading. Uh, let me just highlight some of these kinds of questions. Number one, like the, the first one there, what, what kind of book are you reading? That's a good one. To, if, you're, if you're in Ezra or in Nehemiah right now, what kind of book is that? That should tell me something about what's in it. Um, where does that lie in my Bible? It lies in my Old Testament, and it follows the Chronicles of the Kings, um, and, but it's before uh, Job and then into the Psalms. Uh, does that tell me anything about it? You need to be thinking about those kinds of things. What do you know about the author who wrote it? Um, what do you know about the audience? Uh, down a little bit further in the second kind of block, the second line down, read the passage over and over again. Try hard to not assume you know what it says. That's really hard. I, I find this all the time, like when I was going through Luke and going through Acts. Um, I'm like, oh, I, oh, I've read that passage so many times. I, I know what that's at, what that passage is saying. And then I start studying. I'm like, oh. This says so much more than what I thought. That's not even what it's really about. And don't, you have to try to put yourself, when you're reading carefully and really trying to absorb what you're reading, act like you don't, like you've never heard it. And just read it again and see if anything new jumps out at you. Um, looking at different translations is really helpful. Put your uh, NIV next to the NAS 
next to the ESV, next to New King James Version, next to Holman Christian Standard Bible. If you just did that with one verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, et cetera, et cetera. And if you did that and you just noticed where they differed, why did that translation not put that word in, but this one did? You would have a very interesting time of study that would be really fruitful. Um, good to do that. Uh, you don't have to know Greek or Hebrew. We, have, we are the richest English culture in all of human history because we have so many good Bible translations. We have a lot of really bad ones, but we have so many good ones. Okay, You can use those to help you. Uh, what do you think the key words and phrases are? What in the text supports your conclusion? Who gets to decide when you're talking to your child what the key most important word was or phrase? Your son or you? You do, right? So you have to be able to say the key word here is what the author says it is. It's not my favorite word. Okay? Uh, things like that. Um, grammar and syntax, we'll talk about that. There's another one down towards the bottom in the second to the bottom paragraph. Um, how does this passage fit in with what comes before and after it? I remember when we were going through Acts. Uh, Acts 10 is the story of Peter uh, being told to go to Cornelius. Cornelius is a Gentile. Chapter 11 is the recounting of the very same thing again. So God thought it was wise for there to be two chapters that tell the same story twice. The gospel is going from the Jews to the Gentiles. Here's the Gentile. Okay, two chapters. Skip chapter 12. Chapter 13 is Paul's first missionary journey out to the Gentiles. Okay, so chapters 10 and 11, all about how Peter had a hard time going to the Gentiles, but he did, and then he went back and he had to convince the Jews that the gospel was going to the Gentiles. And then Paul goes on missionary journeys, and that's all that's left. What's chapter 12? You know what chapter 12 is? Herod is a king, and he throws Peter in jail. And he put James to death with the sword, and he's going to do the same to Peter. And then Peter gets let loose, and then before the chapter's over, King Herod is dead because he was eaten by worms. Why is that chapter there between those two things? You should think about that and answer that on your own sometime. It's really fun. Kings can't stop the gospel. All right, so start in, in, uh, considering last paragraph you see there. Start considering some important things like, what am I learning about God as I go through this? Don't forget, you're a worshiper. So even as you're reading, what am I getting? What do I need to write down in my margin? What do I need to journal about? What do I need to put into my document? Um, read carefully. These kinds of considerations um, in your observation can help you maintain a worshipful, teachable heart as you carefully read. Okay, now listen. This is more of kind of like a study reading. There's times where you need to sit down and you need to just read and you need to not be worrying about that. You need to read big chunks of scripture. You just need to read a lot. And that's okay and you should do that. You're not going to be able to do all these kinds of things when you do that. There's not one kind of reading that you do and there's only the one kind. And if you don't do that, you're like a really disobedient Christian. There are sometimes you're going to read and you're going to have one verse and you're going to go through questions like this. There's other times when you need to be reading and you're reading, you're trying to sit in one reading and you're trying to read Judges. One reading. I'm just going to read Judges today. You need to do all different kinds like that. Okay? Number five. Understand the relationship between interpretation and application. The relationship between interpretation and application. Let me illustrate it first for you in, in this sense and then I'll tell you what interpretation and application are. Uh, there's an important relationship between those two things, and you need to understand this. They're like two back-to-back -back runners on a relay team, okay? Uh, relay runner number one runs with the baton, runs his part, and r relay runner number two isn't doing anything. Relay runner two is not running the, the leg with them, right? Relay runner first hands it off. Relay runner number two runs, and relay runner number one is finished, not doing anything more, not running alongside but right, so one runner, then another runner. Uh, they are not equal. They are not the same. They don't do the same thing. Interpretation is runner number one. Application is runner number two. They are not the same. They cannot be interchanged. When you do, you mess things up a lot with the Bible. Okay, what are we talking about? Here's interpretation. Interpretation finds the meaning the author intended. Interpretation finds the meaning. That's a key word. Meaning. 
Interpretation finds the meaning the author intended in his historical situation. Okay? That's interpretation. Application are the various ways that I, my life needs to change in light of that. How do I need to change? What do I need to think? What do my attitudes need to be corrected? What in my thought life needs to be purified? How does my behavior need to change? Okay, let me give you an example from Joel James. Uh, Jesus said in John 15, 12, love one another. Okay? A wife studying that might think in response, oh, love one another. That means I need to love my husband better. Um, but is that what Jesus means? She reads love one another and she says, what that means is I need to love my husband better. What does Jesus mean in John chapter 15, verse 12, when he says, love one another, when he speaks to his disciples? Um, Or has she conflated or mixed together how she believes her life must change with what Jesus meant? Okay? Um, If her view of what that passage means is right, she's going to get upset when other people come to the same meaning and want to love her husband better too. That's not what it means, right? Actually, what this is, what this reveals is a sloppy usage of the word means. And so if there's any one thing you can do is control yourself to learn what that word means and use it only as it is meant to be used. Okay, let me give you an example. We say that a lot of times. We use the word means for how we think it should impact our lives. Um, misspeaking that way opens the door for even a lot more statements. So you, you're sitting and listening, and one woman is reading John 15, 12, and she says, what that means is I, I need to love my husband better. And then one woman goes, well, that's what that passage means to you, but what it means to me is I need to love my neighbor better next to me. You see, that, that's the wrong use of the word means. That's not what Jesus meant. There's only, how many meanings in a passage? One. And it's not this woman, it's not the other woman. It's Jesus' meaning. What did Jesus mean? Jesus was talking to 11 disciples at that time. Ju- Judas is out. And he was talking to 11 and he said, you need to live selflessly toward others, toward one another. Now, one woman looks at that and says, That's what that means. Now, application. How should my life change? I'm convicted that I need to love my husband better. So how I want to apply that to my life is I want to love my husband better. Another woman applies it differently. But there's one meaning. That's not what it... It doesn't mean that she needs to love her husband better. Because Jesus didn't say, love your husbands better, wives. He said, love one another. Do you understand that? It's very important to... Listen carefully when you're in your small group together and your discussion group and somebody says, well, what that means is that I have to, or whatever, and you have to listen carefully to help people. Um, here's what Joel says. Look at, in fact, turn to Romans chapter 12 for a moment, verses 1 and 2. You know this passage. You're familiar with this. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Joel James says, interpretation and application must always be kept separate. And here's one way you can do that. Um, If you're studying Romans 12, 1 and 2, rewrite in your own words, those two verses and start every sentence with Paul said. Paul said to the Romans, I urge you by the mercies of God. Paul said to the Romans to present themselves, their bodies, a living and holy sacrifice. Paul said to the Romans that that um, presentation of their bodies as as a sacrifice is acceptable to God. Paul said to the Romans that that is their spiritual service of worship. Paul said to the Romans that they should not be conformed uh, in their thinking to the world, etc. Because that's what the passage, what? Means. Okay? That's what it means. Start there. 
That's the interpretation. And then from that interpretation, in a second step, you can take a step away and develop, okay, now what on earth in my life needs to change? Okay? Uh, let me give you a wrong approach. Do not be conformed to this world. Well, to me, that means that you shouldn't watch cable TV or anything like that. In fact, this verse means that all stuff like that, all cable is, is evil. In fact, if you have cable TV, you're probably not a Christian because you're not supposed to be conformed to the world. That's what it means. Is that what it means? No. You notice how that, that's just one mixed, swirled fusing of trying to figure out what it means and how my life should change. You can't pull it apart. It's just this gooey thing all mixed together. The right approach is to say, Paul said to the Roman believers that they should not follow the same patterns of thinking that unbelievers do. Now, application. Something that influences me to think like the world does is some of the stuff I'm watching on TV. I think what I need to apply from that is I need to um, either do one of two things. I either need to really limit what I'm watching on TV or maybe I just need to cut it out for a while entirely. Now, do you see how those were two very distinct, clear, separate steps? I'm not telling you what I think it means for my life. I'm telling you how my life must change on the basis of what Paul said it means. Okay? Two clear, distinct steps. Um, one interpretation in a passage. How many applications can come off of that? How many different ways can your life change from that? How many different people will come up with different ways that they think their life should change from that one meaning? Oh, countless ways. But there's only one meaning. Just because there's an abundant ways our life needs to change doesn't mean that there are abundant meanings. Or one meaning. Okay? Very important to keep in mind. Discipline yourself to interpret first and then to make applications. Number six, linger longer for better life impact. Linger longer for better life impact. This expands on number five. When we just talked about serious readers of the Bible are really after something important and good. They're looking for a life-changing, life-impacting application or encouragement from the Bible that's going to speak to them and their situation in life that they're currently facing. They're opening their Bibles because they really need something that helps them know that their life is being impacted. God is going to speak into my life. And certainly God intends his words to impact our hearts, right? But I'm going to say this. But how you get to that is everything. Okay? How you get to that is everything. We shouldn't get to a life-impacting encouragement by doing violence to the meaning of a text. And that can happen. This is why you really have to control yourself um, as you read and interpret. It's possible to get in such a rush to experience something that just really feels good from God's word that you get there from a passage and it's, you did violence to the text. And again, I always ask myself, would I want people to do that with my words? If I don't want them to do it with my words, then I probably shouldn't try to do that with God's words. Um, the problem is, is we can arrive at that feel-good impact in illegitimate ways with God's word. It's possible for hurried or maybe even desperate readers you feel really desperate sometimes for your life to be impacted. It's possible to go after something that feels good in a life impact feeling that of what you just read, but, but walk away from that feeling very satisfied. But God walk away from that going, that, that's not what I meant at all. So what's the solution? Can I tell you this? Train yourself. Train yourself to desire the true meaning of a passage before getting any life impact from it. Train yourself to want the true meaning first before you want any life impact. There's times you're just going to feel so desperate for the Lord because you're in this situation before you and you just don't know and your Bible's open and you're, you feel like your heart is just scrambling or you're trying to look for something. But listen, control yourself and say, what I need to have first, more than anything, is I need to know what it means. Life impact will come, but I need to know what it means first. Okay, so don't 
discipline yourself to not want any kind of feel-good life impact from God's word that isn't truly connected to the original meaning there. Okay? A lot of times we just want want an itch scratched. And we think that verse does it. Well, what if that verse isn't given by God to scratch that itch, but a different itch? Okay? I'm going to give you an example, the, 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 the easiest example. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Right? Plans for welfare and not for calamity. Now let's turn to Jeremiah 29, 11. Right? That, that, that verse is all over memes. It's on calendars. Uh, we've all used it. And look. It is an, I mean, you can just hear that and it feels good, doesn't it? I mean, really, it does. But it, it has to feel good the right way, not the wrong way. It has to feel good the right way. Otherwise, you could be making it say something it's not. Look at Jeremiah 29. Um, I think it's back in verse, look at verse one. These are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exile, the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Who's he writing? These are actually words from a letter from Jeremiah to the exiles in Babylon who are there. So anything he says that's you is not you. It's them first. That's what it means. That's what it means. Right? Reading further, you, you see that this promise was a part of God's plan to restore the nation of Israel, even in, yet in the future, beyond the exile. They're in a terrible situation. Listen, um, that's what limits the meaning of, of the verse. And so you control yourself by, letting, by lingering a little longer. What does that verse mean? Well, I'm going to read some verses before it. I'm going to read some verses after it. I'm going to linger longer to make sure I get the right life impact. Okay, Uh, if you want to know uh, another way to say it's context, 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 right? Need to know the context. Did this apply to Jeremiah? I'll tell you what, if it did, um, Jeremiah probably went to the grave uh, in his death. um, God, where's my plan for welfare and not calamity? Um, Lots of Jews didn't get this. It's not a guarantee, right? That this is a sweeping promise for all believers everywhere to have an easy and calamity-free life. Boy, that feels good. I wish I had that. And I might grab that verse just very quickly and go, this is, this is it. It's not. Um, quickly skimming a passage. Because we're eager to arrive at a feel-good, life-changing impact, that positions us to miss the intended meaning entirely. And and a legitimate application from a passage can never happen if you do that. They can never, a legitimate application can never exist without the solid interpretation underneath it. Um, And that takes more time than you think in your reading. So you need to slow down sometimes. Let me ask you this. What if God's purpose for Jeremiah 29.11 for us today, what if his purpose is that he primarily wants us, as we read those important words to Israel in exile long ago, as intent is, he just wants us to marvel and worship at his goodness that he would promise something like that to such undeserving ancient people. What if that's why he has it there for us? Are you okay with that? Yeah. What if we just marvel that, look, look how, look how disobedient that people are. They broke the covenant. But look at my God. That's my God. And what if his intent is just just marvel at who he was with them? In other words, let me ask it this way. Do those words only take on life impact when I'm written into them? That's most of Christianity today. It only takes on life impact when I write myself in the story. So I become the you. And God's talking to me. I wrote myself into the story and that's his promise for me. Oh man, he's got a lot of promises for us, but we need to get to the impact on our lives the right way. Which one do you have to work a little harder for? 
train yourself to want to work a little harder to get to the best impact. Listen, when you read a historical account of World War II, the invasion at Normandy Beach, does it only impact your life when you write yourself into it and you're one of the soldiers jumping out of the back of the boat and you're coming through the water and you're, you're getting shot at and your buddy's not? Is that the way that it makes an impact on you? You write yourself into the story? No. You intuitively know how to do that. That's just impactful. Look what, look what those selfless, courageous men went through. That changes my life as I read stuff like that. And it wasn't by me being there. But why do we do that with God's word? That's history. It's better history. It's more accurate history. All right, number seven. Give grammar and syntax more weight in interpretational decisions. Um, when trying to communicate what's inside of us, here's what we don't do. We don't think of four keywords in a list form and then just say those words. Do you remember, Some of you in here are old enough to remember the old uh, game show on TV called Password or a $20,000 pyramid or whatever it was. 40,000. I want to remember what the dollar amount was. But the game password, you'd have a, a teammate and you'd have a, a word that you're trying to get them to say. And so the announcer would come on in this really hushed voice. The password is snoring. And the one person would go, breathing. And they would try to guess. And then it would go to the other team. And the other guy would, with that same word, hearing what was just said, say, sleeping. And then his partner would guess. And if he didn't get it, it would come back. And you'd be noisy. And then it would go back to the next one, annoying. Is it snoring? Yes, you win. Okay, there's that kind of thing. One word at a time coming out. We don't communicate that way. Language is not a list of words that we're trying to communicate. You don't talk to your kids that way. Um, disobedient. Um, <laughs> angry. Um, Near-death experience. Uh, you don't, we don't communicate that way. What do we do? We take words, because language works this way. We take words and we learn how to arrange them. We're, we're taught as we grow up with language. You know more grammar than you know you do. And syntax means how you construct them together. Singular subject, singular verb. Object receiving the action. You, you know these things without knowing maybe the names for them and all of that, um, but, but you're, you're teaching them to your children. They know how to speak this way. They're learning how to. It, it, the more you study on things like this, the more helpful it can be. Um, we string words together. And a verse doesn't say more or less than what the rules of language say that it means. And... The meaning we intend through our words, the meaning God intends through his words, they're bound up in how words are put together. And so there are grammar rules. And the more you can become familiar with these kinds of things, the, the more meaning will jump out at you. It jumps out at you now. You don't have to know grammar rules to get meaning from the Bible. But if you do know grammar, a little bit of it, a little bit more, you're given a few more keys on your key ring that help you go, oh, I open that up and I see what that means. You get a few more. It's not demanded, um, but discipline yourself, stretch yourself to learn a little bit more about it um, so that you can um, just even feel more comfortable getting the meaning from the text. Number eight, be careful with the word's meaning. Be careful with the word's meaning. At the proper place and time, it's appropriate to isolate a word in your careful reading of scripture in order to define that word accurately. As you do that, you need to keep in mind the historical appropriateness of that word that you're trying to define. One of the great dangers a Bible reader faces is reading a modern view of a word back into an, a word that's used in your Bible. Um, let me give an example. Uh, in your mind, if I say slavery, you probably think of modern day or at least our nation's near past history of slavery. And you probably think of slave ships and you probably think of things that are rooted in, in what you know and what you've been taught and what you've learned yourself, right? If you take, when you see then um, that in the New Testament, Paul in the church is speaking to a slave, slaves must be blah, 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 blah. If you take what's in your head from your day and you import it all into that, because that's what your understanding is, that's called totality transfer. 
you took totally what the word means in your day and you transferred it into what Paul meant and you, what you need to ask yourself is what? But is that, is that the way that Paul understood that word? Right? Um, words change in their meaning over time and you need to be very careful. Um, for instance, if you were to go out uh, in, in your lost world that you live in and you are to uh, ask people, what, what does the word grace mean? Oh, that's being, that's elegant movement. I think of like an ice skater, very grace, uh, you know, graceful moves and things like that. And then what if you were to say to them, okay, great. Uh, here's what God says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Oh, through elegant motion. <laughs> I have been saved through faith. See, I mean, that word doesn't even fit. That's a, it doesn't even begin to touch on what the Bible's definition of grace is. Who gets to determine what the word grace means? Not today's hearers or readers, but the original users of those words, right? Key words have to be defined that way first and accurately. You need to do that. Um, you can, um, if you have an English concordance, either on uh, you know digital format or an, an old one, uh, like an NAS concordance, uh, you can, man, you can learn a lot about how a word is used. You can look up all the different ways it's used and you can find that actually a word is used in different ways. It has different meanings from one place to the next. Um, look at John chapter 1, verse 14. Let me just give you a couple of examples for the, this one word. Watch this. We rejoice at this verse. John 1, 14. And the word became what? Flesh. Isn't that the best news ever? The word became flesh. All right, now look over at Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit. Wait a minute. The Word became that which sets its desire against the Spirit? The Spirit and the flesh are in opposition to one another? So the Word became that flesh? How on earth is that possible? The deeds of the flesh are evident? Immorality? The Word of... The word became that flesh or what? The word flesh has what? Multiple meanings. How do you determine what it means in chapter one of John? And how do you determine what it means in Galatians chapter five? Here's what you don't do. You don't say, oh, the word became flesh. I remember that. I read that yesterday. You know what that means? Uh, in Galatians five, when I read that yesterday, it means that the deeds of the flesh, it's like really sinful stuff. So, you don't do that. You don't define one word by turning from that text to go to a different text. You let that word define it for you. Same thing will happen in a little bit more complicated way. It happens with um, uh, the word justification, the way that James uses it and the way that Paul uses it. We'll talk about that in the next one here. So what the author intended in his specific context determines what a word means. How about this? This is an interesting one. In Psalm 19, verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring, for, is it enduring forever? All of a sudden, I thought that's what it meant. Uh, let me look real quick. I don't want to mess it up. Psalm 19, verse 9. Do you know what he means there? Do you know what the fear of the Lord is there? What does it mean? The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. That's in a list of different descriptions of the word of God. That's another way of referring to the word of God. Now, as you read through Proverbs, you don't come to that conclusion. You come to it as something that I must do, that I must fear the Lord. But it's called, in at least in Psalm 19, it's a synonym for the Word of God. Allow your Bible, so discipline yourself to carry out word study in the right way, that your Bible gets to determine it. Number nine, going to keep pushing here. We're getting close, I promise. There's an important balance to maintain when you read Scripture. The Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years by more than 30 different human authors. Isn't that amazing? And yet the Bible agrees amazingly so with itself, but not so amazingly if you realize that there's actually one author, capital A author, God, right, with one mind. Um, but just because the one author of Scripture never uh, disagreed with himself from one passage to the next, that doesn't mean that every single passage says the exact same thing. We just saw that, right? Flesh in John chapter 1 does not mean the same thing of flesh in Galatians chapter 5. The unity of the Bible doesn't demand that every single passage say the same thing, okay? 
Um, if I could give you a, a silly illustration, maybe. In my back wall, or backyard, I've got a cinder block wall. And it looks like this, right? The one idea that this whole thing is jumps out at me every time I look at it. I think, that's a wall, right? Pretty smart guy. It's a wall. Now, but it's made up of all these pieces. But you know what? In order to get that one meaning and that unity of what it is a part of, do you know what this piece right here doesn't have to be? This doesn't have to be a wall. A wall is not made up of a bunch of little walls. A wall is made up of cinder blocks or stones or bricks that are all different from one another. But when you put them all together, it has a unity of thought and meaning of what it is. And so if this is Genesis and this is Revelation, I don't need Genesis to say the exact same thing that Revelation says for it to give me the one meaning or the unity of the scriptures. And so Paul in, in Romans can talk about justification and Paul or and in James and James can talk about justification and I don't need those two to say it exactly the same way to have unity of thought in the Bible. You can study that sometime on your own with the difference between the way James uses justification and the way that Paul uses justification. One says you're not justified by faith alone, you're justified by your works. And the other one says you're justified only by faith, not by works. They don't have to say the same thing for there to be unity. There can be different meanings that they each intended that you need to study carefully to get to the one unity of what God is saying. One is saying, faith without works is dead. And that justifies you in the sight of men. They recognize that and say, yeah, you have fruit. The other one is saying, before God, you're justified only if you don't have works. And both of those things complement each other very well in the one unified thought of Scripture. Okay? One meaning doesn't override another. Don't define one passage by turning to another. Define the one passage by what? Staying there and doing the hard work, self-control. Don't just flip away to something else. Control yourself. Stay there. What would you want people to do with your words? Um, notice where this is at the end of We have 10 different rules, and this is number nine. When do you compare words and look at different words? Towards the end of your study, not at the beginning. Don't do it at the beginning. Lastly, let's pray again at the end. Prayerfully contemplate what you just read. Talk to God again at the end of your reading about what he revealed to you in the passage. What did you learn about the meaning of the passage you read? Listen, I, I have dear people in my life who, uh, when I talk about how excited I get about what, what a passage means, um, the, the person I love dearly will say, yeah, but, but so what? What are you going to do? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I know. I need, to, I need to change, and I want to. I need help moving towards how my life needs to change. The person needs to move towards loving what it means. It's not one without the other. It's not one to the ex exclusion of the other. But listen, can I just encourage you with something? Learn to just praise God for his meaning in a text. Think about it. Our minds used to be hostile and engaged in evil deeds. We were hostile to God in our minds. And his mind revealed something of himself there. And we understand it now? Can we just pause in our reading and just worship God that I understand what he means? I'm not even interested yet at this point and running off and seeing how my life's going to change. It must. But let's not fool ourselves into thinking that it only, I only had a, a, an important interaction with God's word when I run off and change. Well, what if I just stopped and I've dropped dead in my tracks and I'm stunned at the God of Jeremiah 29, 11, and it has nothing to do with me. I didn't have to write myself into it. I'm just selflessly caught up in who my God is. That's what it means. Look at my God. Discipline yourself, train yourself to want that, to, to, Make your taste, what is it I'm trying to say? Develop a taste for that. You have to train yourself to do that. If what, we're, if what we are is, I'm coming to this because I just need to get this itch scratched. I, need to, I want to feel like I'm, God is near to me and I, I've got this figured out. And 
look, I want that too. We all need that, but we have to get there the right way. And we can't get there apart from what it means. So just pause first in your prayer. Um, I understand what he said. I understand what he said. Ask yourself more, what did I learn about his character? What, what is God like? Prayerfully worship him for that self-revelation. What did I learn about my sin and my rebellion? What strands of rebellion are still lingering within me that I need to now apply the gospel to? How does my life need to change in righteousness so that I'm in more in conformity with his son, Jesus? And, and then what's going to be my plan to revisit what I read later? Because shepherding your heart, discipline number one, isn't just about your Bible reading. It's about what you do the rest of the day too, right? How am I going to bring this back to bear on my life later in the day? All right, so there's, you can have 20 more of these type of self-control things. But the idea, if you walked away with one thing today and, and, and you walked away saying, oh my goodness, I need to control myself a lot more when I read my Bible, I will give you a thumbs up. Yay! <laughs> because that's what we need to be thinking about, okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your unspeakable kindness to us in that you communicated yourself to us through your word and ultimately and even more profoundly through Jesus, the word become flesh. Thank you that you have not left us alone to just scratch about the world looking at creation. That would only leave us condemned. We could come to the fact that you are a God of power, you have eternal power, and that you have a divine nature as Romans 1 says, but we would be left without a Savior and knowledge of our sin and our need for a Savior. But you've given to us your word, and for that we, we marvel. Lord, make us into more careful readers of your Bible, worshipers who control themselves to think carefully about what you mean. And Lord, we want our lives to change. We want to apply the truth the right way. Help us to do that. Lord, we're on a we're on a path, learning how to do this better and better, and we may need a whole really long lifetime to get this down, and that's okay. But let us take another step forward today in encouragement. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.